0: Okay, it looks better. Mm -mm, 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 mm -mm. All right, everybody, come on back. I fixed it. I fixed it, it. I fixed it. I fixed it. That then let me do this. Oh, I did have the Obamas in there, didn't I? Okay, the Obamas, the Obamas. Okay, okay, okay. All right, all right. I, I fixed I fixed it, it y'all. It, it, I fixed it. it. <laughs> No, I don't wanna do that. Oh, y'all, bear with me. Let me get my descriptions. Let me get my descriptions. Okay, that's all set. Mm -hmm. Okay, there we go here. All right, all right.
1: I'll do the thumbnails later, man. I ain't got time to do, th- do 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 do. I don't have time for thumbnails right now. All right, where we at? Where we at? Where's everybody? Okay, we back. All right, all right, all right. My bad. I fixed it. it. No more herky jerky. No more drop frames. I should be good to go. All right. Okay. How's the other half of that sandwich? I wouldn't know. <laughs> Wait. What was the question, sexy red? What was the question? What was the question? I think I watched someone about this woman's case. Yo, it's crazy, right? It's crazy.
0: Her case is crazy.
1: Yeah. Yo, this was like, this is, I had like this whole, I had like this whole bad mom thing planned out. And I'm like, well, shit. Um, and then I went down a rabbit hole. And that was pretty much,
0: I, I came up, you know,
1: it went like, Why did the men have their hands on their hip waiting in line?
0: Because they were waiting. They were impatient. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, let's get to it. Let's get to it. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. We bike. We bike. Let's get to who Patricia started. I got, listen, I done went down a rabbit hole, found some old cases that I didn't know was, was going on. And it's wildness. It's wildness. So
0: come down this rabbit hole with me, y'all. Come down this rabbit hole with your boy. Come down this rabbit hole with your boy.
1: All right. Let's go. Let's go.
2: In the mid-1980s, a young Patricia Stallings lived in Jefferson County, Missouri, where she worked at a convenience store. In 1986, she would end up meeting a man named David, and the pair were married in 1988. They were excited to start their new lives by having a family together and moving into their dream home, a small white house overlooking a large lake. They wasted no time, and in April of the next year, Patricia gave birth to their son, Ryan. Everything seemed perfect until the evening of July 7th, 1989, when three-month-old Ryan began Uh vomiting and Uh wasn't able to keep his food down. Mm. Over the next few days, Patricia noticed that he became more lethargic and his breathing increasingly laboured. As a concerned new mother, Patricia took Ryan to the Cardinal Glennon Children's Hospital in St. Louis, where he was immediately admitted to the paediatric intensive care unit doctors ran a series of tests on Ryan to try to figure out what was making him so unwell and they were surprised with what they discovered Ryan had extremely high levels of ethylene glycol the main ingredient in antifreeze in his
1: but it's not what you think it's not what you think but let's
2: go blood doctors assumed the only way he could have that much of the toxin in his system was if he had been poisoned and they were obligated to contact the Missouri division of family services Little Ryan was immediately placed into protective custody while the police investigated the circumstances around his sudden illness. During a search of the Stallings' home, the police found a gallon container of antifreeze in the basement and seized it as evidence. Just ten days after he was admitted into the hospital, Ryan was discharged straight into a foster home. It wouldn't be until September 1st that Patricia Stallings was allowed a short, supervised visit with her son, where she fed him his bottle. A few days later, on the 4th of September, Ryan was again admitted into the hospital after he began vomiting and hyperventilating, just like he had before. He was treated again for ethylene glycol poisoning, but unfortunately, he would not survive. Mm -mm. The police immediately arrested Patricia at her home, and she was not told about the death of her son until she was in custody. Tests would reveal traces of ethylene glycol in Ryan's baby bottle, the same one that Patricia had used to feed him during her supervised visit, mm-hmm. and an autopsy uncovered crystals of calcium oxalate in Ryan's brain, which is a typical sign of ethylene glycol poisoning. Mm-hmm. The police charged Patricia with murder and assault, and prosecutors publicly admitted that they were considering seeking the death penalty in this case. Mm-hmm. While she spent the next few months in jail, awaiting trial and still grieving the loss of her son, Patricia discovered that she was pregnant with her second child. Soon after, in February 1990, she gave birth to her second son, David Jr., while she was still in prison, and he was immediately placed into protective custody. Despite being in a foster home and having zero contact with his biological parents, David Jr soon began exhibiting the same kind of symptoms that his brother Ryan had before his death. Uh-oh. But there was no way that David Jr had been poisoned, so doctors at the St. Louis Children's Hospital ran extensive tests on him until they were finally able to diagnose him with methylmalonic acidemia or MMA. MMA is a group of rare genetic disorders that stops the body from being able to properly digest and break down specific fats and proteins, which leads to unmetabolized byproducts building up in the blood. The accumulation of toxins causes damage to the brain, liver and other organs that progressively gets worse, Mm -hmm. leading to symptoms such as lethargy, trouble breathing, kidney failure and seizures. While the disorder is rare in that it only occurs in about 1 in 50,000 births, it can often be fatal or significantly reduce the individual's lifespan. In David Jr.'s case... His body wasn't able to break down some of the nutrients within the milk he was being fed due to a missing protein. However, because his diagnosis came early enough, his diet was able to be modified before the toxic substances could make him more unwell. With a clearer understanding of David Jr.'s condition, it becomes easier to explain what had happened to Ryan to cause his tragic death. However, even with the knowledge of David Jr.'s diagnosis, prosecuting attorney George McElroy decided to go ahead with the first-degree murder charges against Patricia Stallings. At trial, the state had an expert testify that a diagnosis of MMA still wouldn't have been able to explain the presence of ethylene glycol in Ryan's blood and that he ultimately died of antifreeze poisoning. Prosecutor McElroy even told the jury, quote, don't try to understand why Patricia Stallings poisoned her child by feeding him from a baby bottle laced with antifreeze. The point is, she did it. Only she could have done it. Despite-
1: They did her so dirty. They did her so dirty, but let's continue.
2: Being fully aware of David Jr.'s hereditary genetic condition and how it could have contributed to Ryan's death, Patricia's defence attorney failed to present their own scientific expert to the jury to explain the connection or to question the state's lab's results. She was soon found guilty and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. However there were still lingering doubts about Patricia's guilt, but David continued to campaign on her behalf and was able to persuade the producers of the popular TV show, Unsolved Mysteries, to feature Patricia's case in an episode. The episode aired in May, 1991, just a few months after she was found guilty. As fate would have it, Dr. William Sly, a professor and chairman for the Department of Biochemistry at St. Louis University, had watched the Unsolved Mysteries episode and was very interested in the case.
0: Mm -hmm. Dr.
2: Sly and his colleague, Dr. James Shoemaker, decided to run further tests on Ryan's blood in order to prove whether or not ethylene glycol poisoning had caused his death. The two discovered that the original testing had not been done using the correct methods, so Dr Sly and Dr Shoemaker retested the blood via gas chromatography mass spectrometry, which is a way of separating, identifying and quantifying complex mixtures of chemicals. The results of the new testing confirmed that baby Ryan had suffered from MMA, but this still wasn't enough evidence for prosecutor George McElroy to drop the charges against Patricia Stallings. So, they conducted some more testing and realised that the labs that had processed the original sample of Ryan's blood had made a shocking error. Dr. Sly and Dr. Shoemaker knew that one of the substances that can build up in the bloodstream of someone suffering from MMA is propionic acid, and it can easily be mistaken for ethylene glycol, a mistake the original lab had unknowingly made. Wow. Prosecutor McElroy needed to hear this evidence from an expert that was not associated with the case, so he approached Dr. Piero Rinaldo, a respected geneticist working at Yale University. After reviewing all of the data, Dr Rinaldo agreed with Dr Sly and Dr Shoemaker's determination that Ryan had died from MMA. He explained that he had found zero evidence of ethylene glycol in Ryan's baby bottle Mm. and that there was a high likelihood that the crystallisation found in Ryan's brain was directly caused by the ethanol drip that had been administered to him in hospital in an attempt to treat the suspected ethylene glycol poisoning. Prosecutor McElroy was finally convinced. 2 years after Patricia Stallings had first been arrested on September 19th, 1991, she was released from prison and all charges against her were dismissed. She was finally free to reunite with her husband and surviving son to begin to grieve for the loss of her firstborn child and to figure out a way to manage David Jr's new MMA diagnosis. Patricia and her husband David filed lawsuits against the hospital that had dealt with Ryan's care.
1: As she should.
2: Let's go. And the laboratories that had got his diagnosis wrong they received out-of-court settlements. However, this likely failed to make up for the trauma the family had experienced. There was only a one in four chance that David Jr. would have inherited the same disorder as his brother, Ryan. If he had been born healthy, would doctors have ever uncovered the hereditary disease? Would Patricia Stallings still be in prison? Thanks to the dedication of a few biochemists, justice prevailed, and important lessons were learned. And most significantly, David Jr.'s swift diagnosis meant that doctors were able to minimize the symptoms of his MMA, which allowed him to live a relatively normal life until he died in 2013 at age 23. Well, well, Dan, what happened to him? You know what? Well, what the hell happened to DJ?
0: Let's go look. DJ Stallings. Cause of death. oh. Did this turn my theme light? No, you've been turned my theme dark. I want dark theme. Dark theme. Thank you. Okay. What did this boy do?
1: What did DJ do? Oh, he had an illness. Oh, okay okay, he had an illness an illness. what was the illness? oh this is sad. this is sad all the way around okay uh, there's one settlement uh, unfold it case okay 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 he okay donated ten thousand there's a point around okay, we'll just run away from Stalin's case and record oh record expunged. Some of the information was ordered to be expunged, but a judge said that Missouri law mandated that prosecutors confident confidentially maintain some of the information related to felony arrest. Okay. The DJ died at 23. I want to get to what killed him. What
0: did he die from?
1: That's the daddy. The daddy died one oh no sweet no okay never never i know no, he died april 30th 2019 age 57 that was pretty young none no one died they all died pretty Shit. i don't know okay okay let's see let's get dj dj, DJ. where is dj it's allowed to come
0: home. Um
1: Okay. It doesn't say what he died from, it just says long illness. Okay, let's do this. obituary. No, nope, that's not him. That's the daddy. I want the son. Here we go. Uh, let's see. Died on September seventeenth. And Twain was buried in the jet- Redemption Barracks National Cemetery. Simi- okay, but it's not saying what, they, what they took him out though. I, all, I, all I could find was a was a was an illness. That sucks. That whole family's fucking cursed, man. Unfortunately, that whole family cursed. Okay, let's get to our next rabbit hole story that I was not prepared for. Holy shnikey This is from 2012. Kimberly science ex-nurse convicted of bleach killings Sentenced to life in prison this heifer here You know, what? let's see if we can find on
0: YouTube Oh my god, come on here we go
1: Oh is that a Netflix documentary about her Nurses who kill. Okay. 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 So let's see if the one did something on, 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 a YouTube. This is an hour long. We're not going to do it. No, we're not going to go through all this. I don't want
0: nothing. <sighs> really an hour long.
1: Okay. Let's do this. This is 20 minutes. Let's see what they
0: Alicia, you know what you. Oh.
3: Mm hmm. life. Mm hmm. When she discovered.
1: Nah, y'all just talking around your mouth. I want to get to her actual story.
4: Every day around the world, thousands of licensed nurses and medical professionals put others before themselves and try to help those in need.
1: All right, all you crazy nurses out here, all you crazy nurses, let's go.
4: This has of course been amplified greatly since the beginning of the COVID pandemic. However, there are unfortunately cases throughout history in which certain individuals have abused the trust of patients in medical settings for their own twisted gratification. Kimberly Clark Fowler was born on November third, 1973, in Massachusetts. We do not know a lot about Kimberly's early life and childhood, but we do know that when Kimberly was a young woman, she decided to move out to Texas, and there she found work in a dialysis clinic. Kimberly was able to find work at a dialysis centre despite somewhat of a shady employment history. It has since been reported that in the lead-up to her job at a dialysis centre, Kimberly was fired from numerous other healthcare sector jobs. One of Kimberly's previous employers and managers at a hospital would later reveal that Kimberly was fired for stealing opioid pain medication and then falsifying urine test reports. This offence should have been enough to ensure that Kimberly never found herself in a healthcare setting again, but sadly she did. In the early 2000s, Kimberly got married to Mark Kevin Sines. The newly married couple had two children together, but they had a turbulent relationship. Shortly after getting married, Kimberly began to develop a drug problem. This was likely linked to her previous offence at the hospital and her subsequent termination for stealing opioids. Kimberly also became addicted to prescription medication and developed somewhat of a fondness for alcohol. On one occasion, Kimberly found herself being arrested for public intoxication and a criminal trespass charge at this point in the story it's apparent that we have a woman who is struggling with substance abuse and addiction however nothing could have prepared those who knew kimberly for what was about to happen next
1: oh what what, what
4: happened in 2008 kimberly was working at the davita lufkin dialysis center in texas in the same year there was quite an unusual increase in the amount of people that were getting seriously ill after receiving their dialysis treatment records show that emergency response units and paramedics showed up at the clinic more than 30 times in April of 2008 to treat seriously ill people. This was completely out of the norm as people went to the clinic to receive beneficial treatment as opposed to becoming sicker. In April of 2008, numerous patients went into cardiac arrest but nobody fully understood why. The number of cardiac arrests continued to rise but people working at the hospital still had no idea as to why this was happening. Two patients, Thelma Metcalf and Clara Stranged, died that month under suspicious circumstances. Thelma was sent to the emergency room on numerous occasions after being administered abnormal amounts of heparin blood thinner. After the death of both patients, the dialysis centre knew that they had to launch an investigation into the recent going-ons at the clinic. Davita Lufkin Dialysis Centre then arranged for one of their clinic coordinators, Amy Clinton, to conduct an investigation to see if she could determine what had caused the tragic deaths of Thelma and Clara. Unfortunately, as Amy Clinton began the investigation, there was no sign of a change of recent events at the clinic. People continued getting sicker and more people ended up in the emergency room. Other staff began to grow very concerned and asked for the support of the local fire department and their supervisors. Thankfully, a week later, two health inspectors arrived on site. It was now towards the end of April in 2008. Marva Roan and Caroline Risinger were in the clinic on April 28th receiving their dialysis treatment. In the beginning, everything went as planned, but then suddenly, both Marva and Caroline experienced a massive drop in blood pressure. Mm -mm. The cause was again unknown at first, until two other patients came forward. Linda Hall and Lorene Hamilton had saw exactly what had happened to Marva and Caroline. Linda and Lorene later testified that they watched Kimberly Clark approach the two women. Kimberly drew bleach out into a syringe and then injected it directly into dialysis lines of Marva and Caroline. Wow. The clinic coordinator, Amy Clinton, immediately confronted Kimberly Clark after hearing the eyewitness accounts of both of the other patients. Kimberly Clark tried to defend herself and said that she was merely cleaning an unused dialysis machine. Amy Clinton then tested the bucket that Kimberly had been using along with the syringes that she had in her person. All of them returned a positive test for bleach. Local law enforcement were by now at the clinic and had taken over operations. The clinic was closed down for two full weeks while a full-scale investigation took place. More tests were conducted on the syringes that Kimberly had been using, and these also tested positive for bleach. Jeez. Kimberly was immediately fired and had her nursing license suspended. Despite being ousted, Kimberly soon brashly no. applied for a job as a receptionist in the local Lufkin Medical Centre. As Kimberly continued looking for new employment, the police began looking into Kimberly's background and brought in experts to lead up the investigation. An epidemiologist later recounted that Kimberly had been on duty every day at the Lufkin Dialysis Centre when somebody died or became seriously ill. It was no coincidence, and the amount of evidence against Kimberly continued to increase as the days went by. The police then took Kimberly's computer hard drives and looked into her internet history. Kimberly had actively been looking up methods of killing people using bleach Holy for quite shit. some time. The police then brought the suspended nurse in for questioning. During an interview with police, Kimberly spoke about using bleach to clean lines and measuring it out with a needle. Kimberly said this to the officers and in they interview him straight off the bat before detectives even mentioned bleach. Kimberly had just inadvertently confessed to her own crimes and now found herself being charged with aggravated assault and five counts mm. of capital murder. While behind bars, two former co-workers of Kimberly's came forward. Candace Lackey said Kimberly Clark had a great deal of dislike for several of the patients that she treated. Coincidentally, these patients mm. sadly died. The initial stages of the prosecution against Kimberly Clark proved to be very difficult. There was no way at first of determining how the bleach had went from the syringe into the dialysis lines and then on into the victim's bloodstreams. These murders took place before any studies had been done on how to detect bleach in human blood. It was through the expert help of Mark Skolkowski, an analytical chemist, that the police found the evidence that they were looking for. In the cases of those who passed away, Mark was able to prove the following. Each time the bleach entered a patient's bloodstream, it causes red blood cells to explode, which then increases iron levels. This process is known as hemolysis and it leads to cardiac arrest and death. Kimberly Clark Science was convicted of killing five people, the death sentence was initially sought by the prosecution team, but that never materialized. Kimberly was given five concurrent life sentences, no parole, and three consecutive 20-year sentences sure. for assault. The district attorney believed that Kimberly had killed more people and had also gotten away with it. Kimberly has lodged an appeal in Texas, but that has been denied. As of today, she is behind bars and will remain there for the rest of her natural life. Kimberly Clark Science took the lives of people who were most vulnerable. This is a terrible story and a tragic loss of life. I would like to send my deepest sympathies and condolences to anyone affected by the crimes of this woman. And my Clara Strange, Thelma Metcalf, Garland Kelly, Cora O'Brien, and Opal Few. Rest in peace. I greatly appreciate anyone who took the time to watch this video. If you enjoyed the is content, horrible. please
1: horrible. This is horrible. Okay. But that's not the, I don't think this is the worst story. The worst story I came across I'll do some rabbit hole digging.
0: uh, Let's see. Let's get rid of that. Okay. This is, for me, the worst of what we'll cover today. Yeah, this is by far the worst. Like, hands down. Okay.
1: Mary Vincent. She was 15 at the time. Okay. Sweet. Okay. Here we go. Um, <laughs> Singleton then assaulted her, raped her multiple times, and then cut her arms off before dumping her into the Del Puerto Canyon. The teenager managed to stumble three miles to the nearest road where she was discovered and taken to the hospital. She had survived a harrowing ordeal, but her story was only beginning. So Mary Vincent grew up in Las Vegas. She ran away from home at the age of 15, moved to California with a boyfriend where the two lived out of a car. However, he was soon arrested for attacking another teenage girl and Vincent was on her own. She decided to hitchhike nearly 400 miles to Corona, California, where her grandfather lived. When the 50-year-old Lauren Singleton pulled over and offered Vincent a ride, she naively accepted as, as he seemed like a friendly older man. Not long after climbing into Singleton's van, Mary Vincent realized she may have made a mistake. He asked her if she was sick after she sneezed and then put his hand on her neck to check her temperature. However, Vincent thought that he was simply being kind, and she soon fell asleep. When she awoke, however, she noticed that they were traveling the wrong way on the road. She grew uneasy and found a sharp stick in the vehicle. Vincent pointed it at Singleton and ordered him to turn around. Singleton claimed he was just an honest man who made a mistake and started driving back in the right direction, but he soon pulled over to take a bathroom break. Vincent stepped out of the vehicle to stretch her legs and bent over to tie her shoe. And then Singleton hit her in the head and dragged her into the back of the van where he attacked her while telling her that he would kill her if she screamed. As Vincent begged Singleton to let her go, he suddenly said, you want to be free? I'll set you free. He then grabbed a hatchet and cut off both of the girl's arms below the elbow and stated, okay, now you're free. Singleton uh, pushed Mary Vincent down an embankment and left her to die in a concrete pipe. But against all odds, she somehow managed to survive naked and falling in and out of consciousness. Mary Vincent managed to crawl out of the canyon and walk three miles back to Interstate 5. She held what remained of her arms straight up so that she wouldn't lose as much blood. The first car that Vincent saw turned around and sped away, frightened by the sight of her, of course. Fortunately, a second car stopped and drove her to a nearby hospital. After intense surgery to save her life, she was fitted with prosthetic arms, a change that would take years of physical therapy for her to adjust to. She also underwent intensive psychotherapy to help her cope with the trauma she experienced. Uh, I have been led. I have been a lead dancer at the Lido de Paris in La- Las Vegas, uh, Vincent said in 1997 in Hawaii and Australia. I'm serious. I'm really good on my feet. But when this happened, they had to take some parts of my leg just to save my right arm. Thankfully, Vincent was able to provide such a detailed description of Lawrence Singleton to authorities that he was quickly identified by the police sketch and arrested. Mary Vincent testified against her attacker in court and s- as she s- and as she left the stand, Singleton reportedly whispered to her, I'll finish this job if it takes me the rest of my life. Ultimately, Singleton was found guilty of rape, uh, kidnapping, and attempted murder. However, he served just over eight years in prison. And was released on parole for good behavior. From that point on, Vincent lived her life in fear, worried that Singleton would follow through on his promise one day. Tragically, he did. But Vincent wasn't the one on the receiving end. Holy cow, I didn't know this about this part. By the late 90s, Singleton had moved to Florida as he couldn't find a community in California willing to accept him. On February 1997, he lured a sex worker named Roxanne Hayes into his home and violently murdered her. Neighbors heard Hayes' screams and called the police, but it was too late. Officers arrived to find her body on the floor covered in blood and stab wounds. Uh, Mary Vincent flew from California to Florida when she learned of Singleton's arrest to testify on Roxanne Hayes' behalf. And, of course, she detailed her own story to highlight just how depraved a man Lawrence Singleton was and why he should be sentenced to death. She said, I was, I was raped." She told the jury, I had my arms cut off. He used a hatchet. He left me to die. Singleton was sentenced to death on April 14, He spent three years in prison awaiting his execution, but he died from cancer at the age of 74 while still on death row. Uh, in the years following the attack, Vincent wasn't sure she would ever live a normal life. She struggled, got married and then divorced, had two children and eventually found, uh, founded the Mary Vinton foundation to help other survivors of violent crimes. That's her. Okay. Okay. He destroyed everything about me my way of thinking my way of life holding on to innocence and i'm still doing everything i can to hold on i've broken bones thanks to my nightmares i've jumped up and dislocated my shoulder just trying to get out of bed i've cracked ribs and smashed my nose Eventually, however, Vincent discovered art and it helped her cope with the trauma of what she's been through She couldn't afford to buy high-end prosthetic arms So she created her own using parts from refrigerators and stereo systems and she taught herself to draw and paint using her inventions Jeez This is horrible y'all I Wasn't ready I wasn't ready Okay, let's see what she looks like now. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, my God. Come on. Damn it. Okay, let's see what she looks like now. No, no, no. Let's do this. Let's do this. Mary Vincent. Vincent. Oh, they made a movie out of this?
4: Okay, so that's
1: her. Oh, okay, okay. That's her. Okay, okay. Yo, the fact that no one has, no company has donated her to get better arms, like actual better, that's sad. Like, some biotech company has yet to donate her proper prosthetic arms, that's really sad that yeah that's horrible right you think a company would say here here's some here's our best our latest and greatest arms that's crazy wow yeah right the fact that if she even survived this you know what let me find i want to find an actual youtube video though let's do this let's do this i know this her story's all over youtube has to be okay that's an hour i'm not gonna do an hour man okay let's do this. What is up, EWU crew? Okay, yeah,
3: yeah, okay, sis. All that would happen is that they'd arrive at their destination. However, this was not always the case. Sometimes, uh, okay, okay, raised in Las Vegas, by the time Mary Vincent was 15, she had gone through many troubling experiences for being so young. According to various news sources, Mary didn't get along with her parents, often skipped school, and eventually left her home in Las Vegas to go and live with her boyfriend in Sausalito.
1: What the hell? What just happened? What just happened?
3: Toledo, California, okay. although that didn't last long. Soon after she went to stay with him, he was allegedly apprehended on assault charges. Not knowing where else to turn, Mary headed back home to Las Vegas before running away once more in 1978. For a short period of time, Mary slept in unlocked cars before eventually deciding to hitchhike her way to Corona, California to get to her grandfather. She also had the hope that once there, she could eventually take up a career as a dancer as she was quite passionate about it. On September 29, 1978, the determined young teenager made her way to a highway in Berkeley, California, and most drivers paid no mind to the people standing on the side of the road looking for a ride. Mary was among these people holding a sign that read, heading south. Time went on until finally a van pulled up beside her. Inside the van was a middle-aged man and he kindly asked where she was looking to go. Mary informed him that she was hoping for a ride to Los Angeles and the man offered to take her there. Allegedly, a few of the women also waiting to hitchhike glanced nervously at the man and reportedly even warned Mary not to go with him. Desperate to get to her destination and feeling as despite the other women's alleged concerns, this man reminded Mary of her grandfather and seemed welcoming and friendly enough. The two soon set off towards Los Angeles. The man's name was Lawrence Singleton, a 50-year-old former merchant seaman. The ride was pleasant enough. That is, until something happened that seemed a bit strange to Mary. As they went, Mary sneezed and Lawrence reached over to touch her neck before asking if she was ill. Unnerved by the sudden physical contact, she quickly moved away so that he would stop touching her. Although this situation was rather awkward and uncomfortable for the 15-year-old, when nothing else occurred to increase her unease, she began to relax. A little while after, Mary started drifting off. Lawrence had made no further advancements and she felt as though it was safe once more. She figured that it was a long way to Los Angeles anyways, so why not take a nap? Eventually down the road, Mary woke from her comfortable slumber to find that Lawrence had gone a different route, one that certainly wouldn't lead to her requested destination. Angered and frightened by this, Mary reportedly threatened Lawrence with a sharp stick she found in the car and demanded that he go the correct direction. Some sources say that Lawrence reassured her that they were going the right way, while others state that he acted as though it was simply a mistake and turned around. Either way, Mary accepted his words, believing he was telling the truth and they eventually made it to a rest stop. However, Mary was beginning to feel more and more that the man's intentions were not only to get her a ride to Southern California and unease began to creep into her bones. As Lawrence got out to take a bathroom break, Mary noticed her shoes were untied. Still unsure of how genuine this man really was, she got out to tie her shoes just in case she needed to make a quick escape. As Mary bent over to tie her laces, she had no idea that a shadow was lurking behind her, waiting for the perfect moment to strike. Suddenly, a sledgehammer slammed into the side of her head and Mary fell to the ground, completely defenseless. She was then knocked unconscious. When Mary finally awoke, it was a completely different scenario than when she had woken from a contented nap only hours earlier. In utter shock and horror, she realized that her attacker was indeed Lawrence Singleton the man she had trusted. After knocking her unconscious, Lawrence had pulled her into the van and drove further down a nearby canyon. He then tied her up, securing her arms to the van walls so that she couldn't escape no matter how much she tried. The night that Mary then suffered through was both cruel and sick. Throughout the entire night, she was repeatedly assaulted by Lawrence. The morning after, she pleaded with him to be freed. Coldly, Lawrence taunted her, saying, if you want to be set free, Uh I'll set you free. Lawrence brought her to the road and laid her down before pulling out a hatchet from his van. Mary watched in fear and confusion as he approached her. He then lifted the hatchet and began to hack away at her arms. Writhing in pain and agony, Mary could do nothing but sit and let her arms get mutilated until both of her forearms had been severed off of her body. Suffering such pain while still conscious is something nobody should have to experience. And yet, even after the pure torture he had just put the young girl through, Lawrence was still not done with his inhumane crime. Mary was then tossed over a 30-foot cliff near Del Puerto Canyon wow. and stuffed into a concrete pipe.
1: Yo, this sound like my uh, Heihachi and Kazuya. When he, when, he, uh, when Heihachi threw Kazuya off the cliff,
0: oh my god, jeez.
3: Once finished, Lawrence sickeningly remarked, okay, now you're free. He left Mary to bleed out inside of the pipe. And as he went on his way, he believed that he had just committed the perfect crime. And yet, even as Mary bled out and suffered excruciating pain, she was not ready to give up. One thought remained with her, how terrible it would be if she let this man commit the same crime against other teenage girls. Miraculously, Mary managed to cover what was left of her arms in mud and mustered the strength to try and find help. She dragged herself back up the cliff and then proceeded to walk an entire three miles to the nearest highway, all the while holding her arms up to keep the bleeding to a minimum, as well as prevent her muscles from falling out. Allegedly, the first sign of help she found was a car. However, when the occupants of the vehicle caught sight of her, they sped off in fear and Mary was left hopelessly by herself. Two individuals found Mary soon after and immediately rushed her to the hospital. Even after her heroin captivity, she managed to make it out of the brutal situation alive. Mary was determined not to let Lawrence get away with the horror that he had committed against her. And she later gave a detailed description of the man who had attempted to kill her, one that would help the police find and arrest him. By the time Lawrence was arrested, Mary had been given prosthetic arms and parts of her leg were used to help salvage what was left of her right arm. Because of this crucial operation, Mary was no longer able to dance and has since been forced to forget her dreams of ever becoming a dancer. Although Mary had gone through so much already, there still was more that had to be done to ensure Lawrence would be brought to justice. When a trial began six months after the crime had been committed, she was ready to testify against him, even though the idea of facing her attacker must have been thoroughly horrifying. Lawrence ended up receiving a mere 14 years in prison for his disturbing acts. Even worse, Lawrence could eventually be eligible for parole. While in court, he had whispered a disturbing threat to Mary, I'll finish this job, even if it takes the rest of my life. Mary, who was still only a teenager, paled and left the courtroom, and only later did she reveal what he had whispered. Mary received little compensation after everything that she had endured, even though it was extremely difficult to find a job Mm. due to her life-altering injuries. Although she was supposed to receive $2.56 million from Lawrence after winning a civil judgment, she ended up with nothing since he had no money to his name. Lawrence was whisked off to jail and Mary was left permanently damaged by the horrific acts he had inflicted upon her. She went into hiding for a time, terrified that Lawrence could somehow reappear and continue the nightmare she had managed to escape. Various news sources alleged that she developed anorexia, reportedly dropping below 100 pounds for a time. Later on in life, Mary found comfort in a man whom she fell in love with and the two married. However, they eventually divorced. Meanwhile, in jail, Lawrence was telling his own bizarre version of the story. He reportedly insisted that Mary had threatened him with the sharp stick from his vehicle and acted as if she was going to accuse him of assault. Lawrence even attempted to sue Mary, but the suit was unsurprisingly dismissed by the courts. Shockingly, after only eight years in prison, Lawrence was paroled for his good behavior and because he had worked as a teaching assistant in the prison classroom. (laughs) However, it was extremely difficult to find a place for him to stay during his parole, as many residents in different towns protested strongly to keep him away from their families. In one particular case, Lawrence was transported from a hotel room under armed guard in Rodeo, California, when a whopping 500 people had swarmed the area in protest. After attempting to place him in numerous different towns, he was eventually placed in San Quentin, where he lived in a trailer at the state prison. Lawrence was paroled for about a year before he was released and became a free man once again and chose to move back to his home state of Florida. Knowing that Lawrence had been released must have only heightened Mary's fear and anxiety. It appeared to be devastating to both Mary and the public that he had been set free so early and might have the chance to follow through with his disturbing threat. After Lawrence had settled in Florida, a neighbor made an intriguing comment on his behavior. Tom Bennett stated that they were afraid of him at first, and then continued, quote, but every day he'd talk to you. He'd cook steaks and bring them to you. He fixed up his property really good. He was the neighbor you yeah, dreamed of. Disarm. I started
1: it's to- call Charm and Disarm. Hello, all of the great serial killers, all the greatest do that. It's Charm and Disarm, Ted Bundy. Come
3: on. To believe him maybe he was framed another neighbor who reportedly knew nothing about his disturbing past let her two-year-old daughter play in the yard with lawrence's rottweiler puppy Cala, while she and her husband would talk to lawrence however it soon became clear that lawrence's mental state was still a very dark place even after beginning a new life in florida neighbors started to feel as if something was wrong when they witnessed uh-oh. Lawrence repeatedly getting in and out of his vehicle. When they went to check up on him, they found him unconscious. They promptly called 911, and it was soon revealed that he had been funneling carbon monoxide into his van. A note was later found and starts out by saying, I hope that I find peace. Before continuing, I would like to thank everyone who helped me Please have me cremated and have my ashes thrown into Palm River on the outgoing tide. (laughs) Surviving the attempt to take his own life, Lawrence was then taken to a psychiatric care center and soon released. Despite Lawrence's issues, including two petty crimes of theft, he seemed to live a mostly normal life. However, this new life of his didn't last long and another horrifying crime soon occurred. In 1997, a 31-year-old woman by the name of Roxanne Hayes met Lawrence at his home. Roxanne was a prostitute and worked to support her three young children, all of whom she loved deeply. A house painter who had shown up to Lawrence's residence unexpectedly just after-
1: Wait, wait. So we have a prostitute that has three kids. Okay. Okay. Let's continue.
3: Dr Roxanne stumbled upon something unforgettable. As he looked in the window, he realized he was witnessing Lawrence beating and strangling a screaming young woman. Instead of helping her, the painter drove away and called 911. When the police arrived at his house, Lawrence, who had blood all over his body, tried to tell the police that he had cut himself while chopping vegetables. This bizarre excuse wasn't believed for a second as authorities had already spotted Roxanne's dead body on his floor. Roxanne had been stabbed brutally numerous times and it was reported that her fingers had nearly been severed off in the struggle. News sources reported that Lawrence had a rather strange explanation for Roxanne's death. He said that Roxanne had actually been stabbed as they struggled to take control of a knife after she threatened to cut his head off. Lawrence also admitted to being depressed and intoxicated at the time of Roxanne's death and claimed that it had all been an accident. To make things even stranger, Lawrence allegedly claimed that as she was bleeding out, she requested that he hold her and the two embraced. After she had died, he cried and tried to talk to her to no avail. Upon hearing the news of Roxanne's death, Mary Vincent did not hesitate to testify once more against her attacker. Mary was asked to identify him and was later quoted as saying, I wanted to see his eyes. Eyes are important. When he was on top of me, I was looking at the ax, trying to stay alive. I asked later if I could look him in the eye, but it didn't happen. With her help, Lawrence Singleton ended up on Florida's death row. Despite his numerous strange explanations and excuses, Lawrence was later quoted as saying, I was framed the first time, but this time I did it. Roxanne's children, who were all very young at the time, remember their mother fondly. Her four-year-old son recalled a fun game the two used to play together, and the other children made similarly emotional statements about their mother. In 2001, years after committing his first devastating crime, Lawrence Singleton died of cancer at the age of 74, before an execution could occur. Mary Vincent was finally able to live free of the fear that her previous captor would try and complete his terrifying promise to her. Mary has since learned to live and cope with not only her traumatic memories, but also her prosthetic arms. She has taught herself to cook and draw with her prosthetics and even become an artist. She started raising a family and makes sure that her two sons are careful and wary.
1: Now, let let me just say this real quick. Let me just say this. It doesn't it, it, it doesn't matter what the woman's condition is. Somebody. Is going to
0: want her. You understand? Let me pull this back. I'm get out of here. It does not matter <laughs> what the
1: woman's condition is. Somebody is gonna pump a kid out of her, marry her, whatever the case. Uh, it's it's it's, it's, it's as time, it's as old as time in, in memoriam. Like, um, somebody's gonna want th- uh, these women, you know. Like, I,
0: that's a horrible story. That's a horrible story. Did, what else did I have? What did I? I know I had something else. I did, but I'll save it for later. Oh, you know what? Let's end this with some dead bedroom. Let's end this with some some dead bedrooms. Okay. Let me. And while I refresh that page, let me get
1: up in these comments. And, uh, yeah, because of the appeal system, Nick, you know, you just can't execute. This ain't the, this ain't the 1800s, bro. You're just, <laughs> Nick be ready to hang a motherfucker like guilty. All right, come on, let's get this thing wrapped up. Yeah. Um, somebody is always going to want these women. It, it doesn't matter. No leg, one arm. Four, five, six kids. Some man is going to want that woman. So, a prostitute who supports your kids. You know what? I'm, I'm, I have no comment. No comment. Yeah. (laughs) Fight the bumblebee. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's get out of here. Let's do some dead bedrooms, and um, we're gonna call it a day. We're gonna call it a day. Dead bedrooms coming right up. Let's go. I think we're going to do three. Let's do three stories. Yeah. Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, we got a bunch of new stories popping up. We'll do three. We'll do three. Jeez. See, I'm saying, uh, listen. If this doesn't, you know... If you think your situation is bad, there's always, always, always somebody going going through something much worse. Let's just try this one. Let's try this one. Let's see how bad this one is. Okay. Went from a totally dead bedroom for a couple of years to getting better late last year, beginning of this year. I broke my leg, so I wasn't making much of an effort. Now it's dead again because she sure isn't going to. It's been years, three, four, five since she's initiated. I don't think I even really care anymore. I'm just tired of it all. For your information, I work, I help cook, I help clean. We have no kids, are financially stable, and my hygiene is impeccable. Okay, well, shit, bro, I don't I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what to tell you on that one. Let's continue. Let's get to this one. Let's get to this one. I've gotten to the point that I just can't stand it anymore. I usually get up and leave the room when when, whenever he's watching has a sex scene. It just, oh, wow, that's bad. Wait. I usually get up and leave the bedroom when whatever he's watching has a sex scene or even just a passionate kiss. Oh, she tired tired. <laughs> okay. I don't know what to do about that one. She, that's, that's messed up. Oh, let's do this one. Let's do this one. Let's do this one. Let's do this one. I've posted on here before about the dead bedroom me and my husband are going through. He cheated about three years ago, and I took him back. Huge mistake. I got a Facebook message today with receipts that he's been sleeping with someone he met online in our... Oh, in his house. In our house. Shit. I'm devastated. I'm so fucking stupid for thinking this can change. I'm so busy at work and I'm here at almost midnight with this information alone, waiting until he comes home from work uh, tomorrow morning. I haven't said a word to anyone, but this is it for me. I'm leaving him, but I have no idea where to start. I'm so worried for my house, my money, having to tell my parents and my friends and family. I don't want to be here. Child shit. Okay. Let's do. Oh, hey, let's do this one. Let's do this one. Okay. High libido to low libido for him. Okay. I consider myself a sexual person with my partner. We've always had that going for us at least eight years later and his omission of his porn habits, the way he treats me better when I'm fitter and just generally his attitude towards women has really turned me off. I can look at him and see he is physically attractive, but it's been a death by a thousand cuts. It's really innocuous, innocuous things too. Like a casual comment of, whoa, If a girl's ass is highlighted in a movie or a photo or him knowing the name of every movie star, wife, girlfriend, I had to ask him to not use his Instagram as softcore porn because all he followed was models. I will say he has changed and is working on his habits, but it frightens me that he would have lived the rest of his life this way if I had not pointed out anything Uh, This mixed with his lying by omission or maybe even lying to himself has seriously diminished my attraction to him. It's bumming me the fuck out. Is this something that couples therapy could help with? I'm, I'm in therapy on my own but can only go so far with that. I thought that I could move past a lot of these things but they always rear their ugly heads and I'm afraid I will hold on to it forever. Yikes. Okay. Let's try, oh, let's do this one. Update, do an update. Lack of sex making me have low self-esteem. Okay, let's try this one. Let's go to this one. All right, lack of sex making me have low self-esteem. My girlfriend, 24 female, and I, 27 male, have been together for almost two years. We've been living together for over six months, and sex has been almost dead ever since we moved in. Even when we do it's just missionary and she tells me to make it quick. Wow. There's no passion, there's no love, there's no pleasure. We have sex maybe once every two to three weeks and even then it doesn't last longer than five minutes. I've spoken to her about it and made it clear it's important to me that it makes me feel unwanted and unsatisfied but now I'm worried the damage is greater. My self-esteem is at its lowest and I find myself becoming jealous when she talks to other men. She tells me she's the problem and she doesn't know why she's like that, but there is little to no progress on her end. She doesn't see the urgency or refuses to see it. I've made it clear if nothing changes as much as it hurts me to say this, I'll have no choice, but to leave because as much as this relationship has been great for me, 95% of it, and I don't want to lose her, but I find myself lonely and isolated and I don't want to feel this way. It just doesn't seem fair or healthy.
0: Mm, mm, mm. Mm, mm,
1: mm. Okay. This'll be the last one. Let me see. What, what, what am I looking on time an hour? Yeah, this'll be the last one. Okay. Let's do this one. We have been married almost 10 years. We have been dealing with this for three years now. During this time, sex was usually once a quarter, which prompted me, a 34 male, to thinking we might have a dead bedroom situation. Her, 38 female, and I have have had all the talks. We've done couples counseling. We've read the books, and now here we are going on five months. She says she's just not interested in sex at all and that it doesn't have anything to do with me. I just can't help but feel undesired. I have started sleeping in another room and I can tell that she is afraid that I won't come back to sleeping in in bed with her. Honestly, though, after going this long without sex, I don't really desire sleeping in bed with her. I don't know. Maybe it's just a bit of retaliatory, but that's how I'm feeling just at a loss. I mean, listen. These dating coaches are not moving the needle. They're not moving the needle. All right, last one. This will be the last one. Is once per month good? Not sure what to do anymore. Okay, my wife, low libido, 42 female, and I, high libido, 41 male, have been married for 19 years, and mismatched libidos have been an issue for most of our marriage. We've had the talk more times than I can count. She usually acknowledges how I feel and vaguely agrees to address the issue. But little progress is made. The marriage hasn't been entirely sexless. We would have sex every other month or so with lots of rejection in between. She will typically orgasm from either oral or PIV. When sex does happen, a couple of years ago, I couldn't take it anymore. and I was brutally honest as at, as I had ever been regarding my feelings of rejection and loneliness and told her I wanted us to work on things, but I was considering divorce. Things did improve for, uh, for a few months. We tried scheduled sex and in general, she became more loving, touching my arms, hugs, kisses before bed, maybe some hysterical bonding. Now for the past year or so, things have declined again. We are having sex only once per month. I know for some of you that this would be amazing, so I'm sorry for complaining. She she initiates, which is a change from most of the marriage, but it's only when her hormones are raging, and it is about the same time every month, about a week before her period. Okay, that's ovulation, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) That means she wants to get pregnant, sir! Jeez! Any other time I initiate, I get rejected. Likewise, suggestions of trying something new or trying to be sexually flirty. Don't go anywhere. I love her and in general we have a good relationship and she will still remark that I am cute. She'll kiss me, hug me, etc. But sex is infrequent and always the same. I'm not sure what to do anymore. How many more talks can we have? I've put up with it for about 19 years. Should I just continue to put up with? Is the grass really greener elsewhere? Advice or encouragement would be appreciated. Wow. I don't know y'all. Uh, this youtube thing ain't moving the needles people out here really going through some stuff all age brackets so um yeah i'm i'm out here i'm gonna get out of here i'm tired and i need to go finish my tan so with that being said thank y'all for hanging out through this hell this hell stream i guess i'll play with obs this weekend if i can um yeah, Gabrielle and D. Wade doing the fifty fifty thing. That's the reality. Uh, yeah, you know what? That that's how I be sometimes.
0: You know what? Let's do look out for ice. Really, that's funny. That's funny. That is funny. Yeah, I'm going to get out of here. So, with that
1: being said, go get that sandwich. Stay away from white men. I can't with y'all. I can't. I just can't. (laughs) Yo, this vetting thing I keep hearing, there's no surefire way to vet anybody. But you can only do so much. So, um, maybe we'll revisit this topic another day. But I'm going to get out of here. Yeah, so. Definitely, I'll see y'all tomorrow. Y'all have a good night. Peace. Before I do that, I need to kind of twist the dagger some more to all my haters All my haters. I'm only 5-5 five, five.
0: Super Slide's 5-5 five, five and gets plenty of ass <laughs>